Section 53 of the Cambridge Modern History, Volume 2, The Reformation. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tad Davis. Chapter 14, The Reformation Under Edward VI, by A. F. Pollard, M.A., Part 4. The confiscation of Chantrylands followed a similar course. The first charge upon them was the support of the displaced Chantry priests, whose pensions in 1549 amounted to a sum equivalent to between two and three hundred thousand pounds in modern currency. The next was stated to be the erecting of grammar schools to the education of youth in virtue and godliness, the further augmenting of the universities, and better provision for the poor and needy. But the bill introduced into Parliament in 1549 for the making of schools failed to pass the House of Lords, and the further order designed by the Protector was inevitably postponed. Meanwhile, the confiscated chantry lands afforded tempting facilities for the satisfaction of the King's immediate needs. In 1548-9, some £5,000 worth were sold, and the proceeds devoted to the defense of the realm, but less legitimate practices soon obtained. The chantry lands were regarded as the last dish in the last course of the feast provided by the wealth of the church, and the importunity of courtiers correspondingly increased. Grants as well as sales became common. The recipients, with few exceptions, repudiated the obligation to provide for schools out of their newly won lands, and the fortunes of many private families were raised on funds intended for national education. A few schools were founded by private benefactors, and it is probable that education gained, on the whole, by its emancipation from the control of the church. But it was not until the closing years of the reign that the government made a serious endeavor to secure the adequate maintenance of those schools whose foundations had been shaken by the abolition of chantries and Edward VI's services to education consisted principally in assigning a fixed annual pension to schools whose endowments of much greater potential value had been appropriated. These proceedings, like the other religious changes made during 1550 and 1551, were affected by the action of the council, of individual bishops, or of private persons. For Parliament, which Warwick distrusted, did not meet between February 1550 and January 1552 but some of the council's measures were based upon legislation passed in the session of 1549-50. to 50. Such were the wholesale destruction of old service books, which wrought particular havoc among the libraries of Oxford and Cambridge, and the compilation of execution of the new ordinal, which was published in March and brought into use in April 1550. By it, a number of ceremonies hitherto used at ordinations were discontinued, and it embodied a clause which has been divergently interpreted both as abolishing and as retaining all the minor orders beneath that of deacon. Ridley signalized his elevation to the See of London by a severe visitation of his diocese and by reducing the altars in St. Paul's and elsewhere to the status and estimation of the Lord's tables. Corpus Christi Day and many saints' days ceased to be observed partly because they savored of popery and partly because the cessation of work impeded the acquisition of wealth. Cranmer, Bucer, and Martyr were secretly busy revising the prayer book, 
and the council was engaged in an attempt to force the princess mary to relinquish her private masses when suddenly in the autumn of fifteen fifty one the nation was startled by news of another court revolution somerset after his submission and deposition from the protectorate had been released from the tower on february sixth fifteen fifty in april he was readmitted to the privy council and in may he was made a gentleman of the privy chamber and received back such of his lands as had not already been sold the duke's easy-going nature induced him readily to forgive the indignities he had suffered at warwick's hands and in june fifteen fifty the reconciliation went so far that a marriage was concluded between the duke's daughter and warwick's eldest son lord lyle from this time somerset to all appearance took an active part in the government but it was clear that he only existed on sufferance as a dependent of the earl of warwick the situation was too galling to last long the duke was allowed no free access to his royal nephew he was excluded from the innermost secrets of the ruling faction and was often dependent for knowledge of the government's plans on such information as he could extract from attendance on the king he was not only opposed to almost every principle on which warwick acted but was personally an obstacle to the achievement of the designs which the earl was beginning to cherish he was thus unless he was willing to be warwick's tool forced to become the centre of active or passive resistance the leader of the opposition in so far as tudor practice tolerated such a personage within three months of his readmission to the council he was exerting himself to procure the release of gardiner of the earl of arundel and of other prisoners in the tower and while warwick was absent somerset was strong enough to obtain the council's promotion or restoration of several of his adherents he attempted to prevent the withdrawal of the princess mary's license to hear mass and sought so far as he could to restore a friendly feeling between england and the emperor in these efforts he found considerable support among the moderate party and the spiritless conduct of foreign affairs by the new government coupled with the harshness of its domestic administration made many regret the protector's deposition before the session of fifteen forty nine to fifty broke up a movement was initiated for his restoration the project was defeated by a prorogation but it was resolved to renew it as soon as parliament met again and this was one of the reasons why parliament was not summoned till after somerset's death warwick viewed the duke's conduct with anger which increased as his own growing unpopularity made somerset appear more and more formidable and before the end of september fifteen fifty one warwick had elaborated a comprehensive scheme for the further advancement of himself and his faction and for the total ruin of somerset and the opposition cecil the ablest of the ex-protector's friends had ingratiated himself with warwick by his zeal against gardiner at the time when somerset was endeavouring to procure his release and in september fifteen fifty he had been sworn one of the two secretaries of state a year later october fourth fifteen fifty one he occurs among the list of warwick's supporters marked out for promotion warwick himself was created duke of northumberland gray marquis of dorset became duke of suffolk wiltshire marquis of winchester herbert earl of pembroke while knighthoods were bestowed on cecil sidney warwick's son-in-law henry dudley his kinsman and henry neville on the sixteenth somerset and his friends including lord gray de wilton the earl of arundel and a dozen others were arrested and sent to the tower paget had been sequestered a fortnight earlier to get him out of the way the real cause and occasion of this sudden coup d'etat are still obscure 
it is probable that foreign affairs had more to do with the matter than appears on the surface the constable of france when informed of it suggested that charles v and the princess mary were probably at somerset's back and offered to send french troops to northumberland's aid it is quite as likely that henry the second was at the bottom of northumberland's action somerset had since the days when he served in the emperor's suite been an imperialist and charles v who still professed personal friendship for him would have welcomed his return to power in place of the francophile administration which had just june fifteen fifty one put the seal on its foreign policy by negotiating a marriage between edward the sixth and henry the second's daughter elizabeth the dispute with the emperor concerning the treatment of the princess mary was at its height and it is possible that plot and counterplot were in essence a struggle between french and imperial influence in england in any case the stories told to the young king and published abroad were obviously false edward was informed that his uncle had plotted the murder of northumberland northampton and pembroke the seizure of the crown and other measures against himself to which the young king's knowledge of the fate of edward v would give a sinister interpretation the people of london were informed that he meant to destroy the city the plot was said to have been hatched in april fifteen fifty one but the first hint of its existence was conveyed to the government in a private conversation between northumberland and sir thomas palmer on october fourth long after the conspiracy if it ever was real had been abandoned palmer who was one of the accomplices was nevertheless left at liberty for a fortnight he was never put upon his trial and when somerset was finally disposed of he became northumberland's right-hand man finally he confessed before his death that his accusation had been invented at northumberland's instigation the earl of arundel who according to northumberland's theory had been the principal accomplice in somerset's felony was subsequently readmitted to the council became lord steward of the household to mary and to elizabeth and chancellor of the university of oxford paget at whose house the intended assassination was to have taken place was never brought into court neither was lord grey another accomplice who was afterwards made captain oguina as amends for the unjust charge to the minor conspirators a very simple principle was applied quite irrespective of their guilt if they implicated somerset they were released without trial if they persisted in asserting their own and his innocence they were executed but in spite of all northumberland's efforts no confirmation was obtained of palmer's main charge scores of witnesses were imprisoned in the tower and put to torture but the story of the intended assassination was so baseless that the charge did not appear in any one of the five indictments returned against somerset and was not so much as alluded to in the examinations of the duke himself and his chief adherents meanwhile stringent measures were taken to prevent disturbance the creation of lord's lieutenant put local administration and the local militia into the hands of northumberland's friends and provided him with an instrument akin to cromwell's major generals london was overawed by the newly organized bands of gendarmes and an effort was made to appease one source of dissatisfaction by proclaiming a new and purified coinage parliament which was to have met in november was further prorogued and northumberland's control of the government was strengthened by a decision that the king's order he was just fourteen should be absolutely valid 
without the countersignature of a single member of the council. Lord Chancellor Rich resigned soon after an alarm at this violent measure, and he consequently took no part in Somerset's trial. The tribunal consisted of 26 out of 47 peers. Among them were Northumberland, Northampton, and Pembroke, who were really parties in the case. They had already acted practically as accusers, had drawn up the charges, and examined the witnesses. They now assumed the function of judges, and, after their verdict, determined whether it should be executed or not. The trial took place on December 1st at Westminster Hall. The charges were practically two, one of treason in conspiring to imprison a privy councillor and one of felony in inciting to an unlawful assembly. Both these offenses depended upon the atrocious statute which, passed in the panic of reaction after Somerset's fall, was to expire with the next session of Parliament, a further reason for its prorogation. In another respect, the trial would not have been possible under any other act, for that act removed the previous limitation of thirty days within which accusations must be preferred, and five months had elapsed between Somerset's alleged offenses and Palmer's accusation. Nevertheless, the charge of treason broke down, and the government boasted of its magnanimity in condemning the prisoner to death only for felony. There was as little evidence for that offense as for the other, and the sum of the ex-protector's guilt appears to have been this. He had spoken to one or two friends of the advisability of arresting Northumberland, Northampton, and Pembroke, calling a parliament, and demanding an account of their evil government. Somerset was sent back to the tower amid extravagant demonstrations of joy by the people who thought he had been acquitted. He remained there seven weeks, and there was a general expectation that no further steps would be taken against him. Parliament, however, was to meet on January 23rd, and it was certain that a movement in Somerset's favor would be made. Northumberland had endeavored to strengthen his faction in the Commons by forcing his nominees on vacant constituencies, but his hold on Parliament remained nevertheless weaker than that of his rival, and it was therefore determined to get rid of Somerset once and for all. An order of the king drawn up on January 18th for the trial of Somerset's accomplices was, before its submission to the council on the following day, transformed by erasures and interlineations into an order for the duke's execution. No record of the proceedings was entered into the council's register, but Cecil, with a view to future contingencies, secured the king's memorandum and inscribed on the back of it the names of the councillors who were present. Somerset's execution took place at sunrise on the 22nd. In spite of elaborate precautions, a riot nearly broke out, but the Duke made no effort to turn to account the popular sympathy. He had resigned himself to his fate and died with exemplary courage and dignity. Parliament met on the following day, and it soon proved that Northumberland had been wise in his generation. Parliament could not restore Somerset to life, but it could at least ensure that no one should again be condemned by similar methods. It rejected a new treason bill designed to supply the place of the former expiring act, and passed another providing that accusations must be made within three months of the offense, and that the prisoner must be confronted with two witnesses to his crime. The House of Commons also refused to pass a bill of attainder against Tunstall, Bishop of Durham, who had been imprisoned on a vague charge remotely connected with Somerset's pretended plots. His bishopric was, however, marked out for spoliation, and a few months later Tunstall was deprived by a civil court.
Parliament was more complacent in religious matters and passed the second act of uniformity, besides another act removing from the marriage of priests the stigma hitherto attaching to the practice as being only a licensed evil. The second act of uniformity extended the scope of religious persecution by imposing penalties for recusancy upon laymen. If they neglected to attend common prayer on Sundays and holidays, they were to be subject to ecclesiastical censures and excommunication. If they attended any but the authorized form of worship, they were liable to six months' imprisonment for the first offense, a year's imprisonment for the second, and lifelong imprisonment for the third. The second act of uniformity also imposed the second book of common prayer. The first book of common prayer had scarcely received the sanction of Parliament in 1549 when it began to be attacked as a halting makeshift by the Reformers. The fact that Gardner expressed a modified approval of it was enough to condemn it in their eyes, and in the second book those parts which had won Gardner's approval were carefully eliminated or revised. The prayer book of 1549 was elaborately examined by Bucer and more superficially by Peter Martyr, but the changes actually made were rather on lines indicated by Cranmer in his controversy with Gardner than on those suggested by Bucer, and the actual revision was done by the archbishop, assisted at times by Ridley. There is no proof that convocation was consulted in the matter, nor is there any evidence that the book underwent modification in its passage through Parliament. The net result was to minimize the possibility of such Catholic interpretations as had been placed on the earlier book. In particular, the communion office was radically altered until it approached very nearly to the Zwinglian idea of a commemorative rite. The celebrated black rubric, explaining away the significance of the ceremony of kneeling at communion, was inserted on the Council's authority after the Act had been passed by Parliament. Two other ecclesiastical measures of importance were the Reformatio Legum Ecclesiasticarum and the compilation of the 42 Articles. The Articles of Religion, originally drawn up by Cranmer, were revised at the Council's direction and did not receive the royal signature until June 1553, while Parliament in the same year refused its sanction to the Book of Canon Law prepared by the Commissioners lay objections to spiritual jurisdiction were the same, whether it was exercised by Catholic or by Protestant prelates. The extensive reduction of church ritual affected by the second act of uniformity rendered superfluous a large quantity of church property, and for its seizure by the crown the government's financial embarrassments supplied an obvious motive. The subsidies granted in 1549 to 50 the money paid for the restitution of Bologna, profits made by the debasement of the coinage and other sources, had enabled Northumberland to tide over the Parliament of 1552 without demanding from it any further financial aid. But these sources were now exhausted, and in the ensuing summer the final gleanings from the church were gathered in. Such chantry lands as had not been sold or granted away were now disposed of. All unnecessary church ornaments were appropriated. The lands of the dissolved bishoprics and attainted conspirators were placed on the market. Church bills were taken down, organs were removed, and lead was stripped off the roofs. When these means failed, the heroic measure was proposed of demanding an account from all crown officers of monies received during the last twenty years. Still, there was a deficit, and in the winter Northumberland was reduced to appealing to Parliament.
by this time his government had become so unpopular that he shrank from meeting a really representative assembly and had recourse to an expedient which has been misrepresented as the normal practice of tudor times there had already been isolated instances of the exercise of government influence to force particular candidates on constituencies but the parliament of march fifteen fifty three was the only one in the sixteenth century that can fairly be described as nominated by the government and renard when discussing the question of a parliament in the following august asked charles v whether he thought it advisable to have a general parliament or merely an assembly of notables summoned after the manner introduced by northumberland a circular appears to have been sent round ordering the electors to return the members nominated by the council even this measure was not considered sufficient to ensure a properly subservient house of commons and at the same time eleven new boroughs returning twenty-two members were created principally in cornwall where crown influence was supreme the process of packing had already been applied to the privy council more than half of which as it existed in fifteen fifty three had been nominated since northumberland's accession to power to this parliament the duke represented his financial needs as exclusively due to the maladministration of the protector who had been deposed three and a half years before and a subsidy was granted which was not however to be paid for two years acts were also passed with a view to checking fiscal abuses but northumberland again met with some traces of independence in the commons and parliament was dissolved on march thirty first having sat for barely a month the ground was fast slipping from under northumberland's feet and the nemesis which had long dogged his steps was drawing perceptibly nearer zimri had no peace and from the time of somerset's fall never a month passed without some symptom of popular discontent in october fifteen fifty one a rumour spread that a coinage was being minted at dudley castle stamped with northumberland's badge the bare and ragged staff and in fifteen fifty two he was widely believed to be aiming at the crown even some of his favourite preachers began to denounce him in thinly veiled terms from the pulpit no longer a moses or joshua he was not obscurely likened to ahithophel his only support was the young king over whose mind he had established complete dominion and edward the sixth was now slowly dying before his eyes the consequences to himself of a demise of the crown were only too clear his ambition had led him into so many crimes and had made him so many enemies that his life was secure only so long as he controlled the government and prevented the administration of justice there was no room for repentance he could expect no mercy when his foes were once in a position to bring him to book the accession of mary would almost inevitably be followed by his own attainder and the prospect drove him to make one last desperate bid for life and for power there were other temptations which led him to stake his all on a single throw no immediate interference need be feared from abroad scotland now little more than a province of france had no desire to see a half spanish princess on the english throne and france was even more reluctant to witness the transference of england's resources to the hands of charles v the emperor was fully occupied with the french war and mary had nothing on which to rely except the temper of england northumberland's endeavour to alter the succession might well seem worth the making he could appeal to the fact that no woman had sat on the english throne and that the only attempt to place one there had been followed by civil war 
Margaret Beaufort had been excluded in favor of her son, and in the reign of Henry VIII there were not wanting those who preferred the claim of an illegitimate son to that of a legitimate daughter. He could also play upon the dread of religious reaction and foreign domination which would ensue if Mary succeeded, and, as she probably would, married an alien. The Netherlands, Hungary, and Bohemia had all by marriage been brought under Habsburg rule, and with disastrous consequences, might not England be reserved for a similar fate? Some of these objections applied also to the Princess Elizabeth, but not all, and Northumberland would have stood a better chance of success had he selected as his candidate the daughter of Anne Boleyn. But such a solution would not necessarily have meant a continuance of his own supremacy, and that was the vital point. Hence the Duke had recourse to a plan which was hopelessly illegal, illogical, unpopular, and unconstitutional. Edward VI was induced to settle the crown on Lady Jane Grey, the granddaughter of Henry VIII's sister, Mary, Duchess of Suffolk. She was married to Northumberland's fourth son, Guilford Dudley, and Dudley was to receive the crown matrimonial, and thus mitigate the objections to a female sovereign. The arrangement was illegal, because Edward VI had not been empowered by law, as Henry had, to leave the crown by will and any attempt to alter the succession established by Parliament and by Henry's will was treason. It was illogical, because even supposing that Henry's will could be set aside and his two daughters excluded as illegitimate, the next claimant was Mary, Queen of Scots, the granddaughter of Henry's elder sister, Margaret. Moreover, if the Suffolk line was adopted, the proper heir was Lady Jane's mother, the wife of Henry Grey, Duke of Suffolk. There was thus little to recommend the king's device except the arbitrary will of Northumberland, who in May 1553 endeavored to implicate his chief supporters in the plot by a series of dynastic marriages. His daughter Catherine was given to Lord Hastings, Lady Jane's sister Catherine to Pembroke's son, Lord Herbert, and Lady Jane's cousin Margaret Clifford, another possible claimant, to Northumberland's brother Andrew. The news of these arrangements confirmed the popular suspicions of the Duke's designs, and during the month of June, foreign ambassadors to London were kept pretty well informed of the progress of the plot. The reluctant consent of the Council was obtained by a promise that Parliament should be summoned at once to confirm the settlement, and on June 11th, the judges were ordered to draw up letters patent embodying the young king's wishes. They resisted at first, but Edward's urgent commands Northumberland's violence, and a pardon under the great seal for their action, at length extorted compliance. On the 21st, the council, with some open protests and many mental reservations, signed the letter's patent. The tower had been secured, troops had been hastily raised, the fleet had been manned, every precaution that fear could inspire had been taken, when the last male tutor died on July 6th at Greenwich. Nothing remained but for the nation to declare through such channels as were still left open, its verdict on the claims of Mary and the Duke of Northumberland's rule. End of section 53. End of chapter 14. Recording by Tad Davis.